Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. A warm welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Robert Bryce, who has a long and illustrious resume here, but I'll just go through a little bit of it and then uh, get him to do what he does to his guests, the famous self-introduction, which we've ripped off here at Decouple. So Robert is, uh, of course, the host of the Power Hungry podcast. I think we have a lot of overlap in terms of our listenership. Author of six books, most recently, Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations, a documentary filmmaker. I guess I'm not sure if you're the uh, producer, director, um, or just the star of Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Um, and lastly, Robert, you're a generous mentor to myself and many other, I think, young and up and coming people getting interested in, in questions around energy. So a warm welcome. Thank you for coming on. Always happy to be with you, Chris. You know, I've, I've gotten a lot of your kudos out of the way, your bona fides. Give us a little more about yourself, Robert, for those listeners that uh, missed your, your earlier episode. Sure. Happy to do so. Um, well, first, glad to be back on the on Decouple with you. Uh, you know, I've been pleased to see how successful you've been and the, the push you're making in Canada. Um, my name is Robert Bryce. I live in Austin, Texas. Uh, first things first, I'm happily married with the same woman. Lauren and I have been married now 36 years this year. We have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob, and they're all thriving and healthy and uh, uh, out of the house, which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> the empty nest is a beautiful thing. Let me just say that as a proud father. Uh, I've written six books. I, uh, I'm a writer, I'm a producer, I'm a podcaster, and I count myself lucky to be able to read, write, and speak about the uh, energy and power systems, energy and power networks, because these are the world's biggest and most important industries, and every other industry in the world depends on them. And uh, deeply concerned about the direction that uh, both we're, we're going here in the U.S. and Canada and around the world where we have a lot of bad policy. And so there's plenty to plenty to write and talk about. Um, Robert, I've heard you introduce yourself a few times, and I, I like that you all start with uh, the most important things first, um, family man and father. So I brought you on today um, to talk about, um, you know, big buzz going on in the U.S. I've been uh, very busy up here in Canada, not paying as much attention as I'd like to to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and I know you've been writing about it, thinking about it deeply. And so, uh, you know, excited to, to bring you on to, uh, to get a sure. better sense of it. Um, it's, you know, it's being hyped um, as, you know, one of the greatest pieces of climate legislation to date. Um, and there's a kind of bizarre um consensus um i guess you know you've written about this but exxon mobil and nrdc uh both endorsing this um why don't you give us a broad strokes overview of of the bill and and you know what's going on well i think the first thing chris is just how the parliamentary process here in the united states how it's being perverted in this the rush to pass this legislation right the Demo it's a <clears throat> there's a 50 50 deadlock um between the Republicans and the, and, and the Democrats in the Senate. And so they're using a parliamentary measure called reconciliation to force this measure through. And then uh, Kamala Harris is, is casting the deciding vote as the vice president and, and president of the Senate. So yes, the, the, the hype around it is remarkable in that it's this, these claims that this is the most far-reaching climate bill ever in the United States and that this uh, yeah, I just finished writing a piece uh, uh, that you know Paul Krugman in the New York Times was talking. What did he he call it? 
did I think the, the headline was did Democrats just save civilization? I mean, you know, so the hype right. is just it's 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 truly been extraordinary. Um, but it's um yeah, here it is. Did the Democrats just save civilization? Expert on energy and, and environment are giddy over what has been accomplished. And the world is a more hopeful place than it was just a few weeks ago, and on and on. Um, you know, this is part and parcel of this kind of the spin that's being put around this bill. But the 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 thing that to me, well, the big picture to me that's that one of the key takeaways is that the U.S. is pushing a lot of these these measures inside this three hundred seventy billion dollar energy package, which is a pa also can, in, contains prescription drugs and some Medicare reforms and some other things. Seven hundred billion dollars or so in spending, but it's being rushed through in this reconciliation process, and none of the key elements in the bill are being debated. I mean, the, and and this is the punchline too in terms of the kind of where is the money going? Three hundred seventy billion energy and climate related spending. By my calculations, and I've been looking at the Congressional Budget Office report, I was <laughs> told you before we started, I was looking at it last night. There's 69 different provisions in this bill, 69 different line items, hydrogen, CCS, you know, climate justice, EVs, la la la, but $127 billion is being will is is going to be given to the wind and solar sectors, which to me is just insane because of what is we see happening in Europe and in Australia and in, in Britain, uh, you know, in California. This excessive subsidization of wind and solar are, are distorting uh, electricity markets and they're hurting consumers. And this is just more of the same. And yet it's being play, you know, played as this great breakthrough. It, to me, it's just another example, unfortunately, of the swamp and how the NGO, industrial, corporate, congressional media complex is pushing through what I think is just bad policy. I mean, is there is there any merit to going through some of the background on this? I mean, uh, there was the Build Back Better bill. There's this figure, Senator Manchin, which Americans in the audience will be yeah. well aware of, but uh, our international listeners may not. Um, is that is that a st story worth exploring at all? Or well, sure. So uh, Joe Manchin is Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia is a Democrat, um, and he has been the uh, key vote in a lot of the negotiations and. About three or four weeks ago, he they, he broke off negotiations with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and said, "No, this isn't going to work for me." And so there was, I mean, he was pilloried in the press and you know called a you know that this is the you know you've single handedly doomed humanity and all this other hyperbole. Well, then a, a, a couple of weeks pass and Manchin changes his mind, and so suddenly the bill is back in play and there, everything moves forward and it gets passed through the Senate. Um, but Manchin is interesting for a lot of reasons in that, you know, he's from West Virginia, which is a conservative state, and it's a key swing state, and it's been a Republican state. Um, um, and and Trump did well there because he came out in favor of coal. West Virginia is a low-income state, heavily uh, hydrocarbon-dependent coal and natural gas in particular. And so Manchin is trying to thread the needle here, I think, but I think in addition that he was under extraordinary pressure from the Democrats to get in line and he did. And so they are able to push the bill. It hasn't become law yet. And it hasn't passed the house or signed into law by the president. But right now it looks like it's going to become law. And as I said, it's just more massive subsidies. If you, uh, the, I mentioned the $127 billion figure. If you add that on top of the existing subsidies for wind and solar, um, the total federal handouts for wind and solar could could more than double and will total nearly $240 billion by 2031. In a decade, they're going to get a quarter trillion dollars. So, you know, you've talked about this uh, hyperpolarization, which I think is is nothing new, this 50-50 yeah. split in the Senate. 
Um, but we are seeing, again, these bizarre consensuses between folks like ExxonMobil and the NRDC. You know, it sounds like there's a little something for everybody, as you're mentioning, you know, the hydrogen folks, the carbon capture folks, um, obviously the wind and solar folks. Um, you know, I have seen groups like the uh, Good Energy Collective, uh, X Energy, uh, TerraPower also endorsing this bill. Uh, what's in there for nuclear? Well, there is, um, there's $30 billion in, uh, um, in, in zero emission, the production credit for nuclear. So that, if I were going to say there's something good in this bill, that would be the one line item that I think is good. But, you know, I'm like you, Chris, I've become kind of really uh, pretty much a nuclear absolutist that if we're serious about any of this, we have to go all in on nuclear, just full stop. And wasting and giving these, you know, essentially just more pork barrel spending to solar and wind when they're already getting over a hundred billion dollars between now and 2031 and giving them yet more. And in some, and by some analyses, some these, these, uh, uh, these tax credits for solar and wind could be permanent in that they'll stay in place until U S emissions from the electric sector go uh, are 75% below 2005 levels. I mean, it's an extraordinarily high hurdle. So there are a few provisions that I think are good, but I think overall, this is just, I mean, it's just more pork barrel spending and it's being, you know, cloaked in this climate saving kind of rhetoric that it's just, it's none of that is true. I mean, the, the other backdrop and the point that I was going to make earlier is it's just so remarkable to me to see this kind of hype and hyperbole around this bill when Europe is rushing back to coal as quickly as they possibly can. Right. And so are the Chinese and so are the Indians and coal demand is going to set another record this year. It's going to set another record next year. I mean, it's just a, a truly, I don't know what the right word is, uh, the, the, the disconnect between the reality and the rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, the failure to learn lessons, I think is, uh, is pretty astounding here. Or even just paying attention to, or just paying attention to current affairs. I mean, you know, what is happening, what's happening today? Let's look around and say, just take stock of where the world is today. And then say, well, how should we be reacting to this? And instead of, you know, making of what I think would be much more rational decisions around the future of decarbonization, which you and I well know cannot happen without large scale nuclear it's just more of the same. You know, the, the, the entrenched lobbies are getting yet more favors. And that, that to me is deeply depressing. I, well, deeply discouraging. I won't say depressing. Getting back to the stated purpose of the bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, there's obviously yeah. a few drivers uh, of inflation. We've had record COVID spending. Um, you know, as a bit of an energy determinist or absolutist myself, you know, the rising price of energy, you know, as, as it's being referred to by a number of people, the uh, secret ingredient in everything is, is certainly um, driving up prices uh, quite a bit. You know, what, what do you see as, as the major drivers of inflation and this bill's promise here is inflation reduction? Well, let me, let me, let me just add, let me address just one other quick point here, Chris, because I, I, I want to talk about the inflation part because I think it's important. But the other part of the spin on this bill has been, and the Democratic, the Democrats press release said, well, this will allow the U.S. to reduce its emissions by 40% by 2030, the 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Well, it's just not going to happen. And yet this was dutifully reported by the New York Times that this puts us on to the U.S. on track. Well, it would require cutting 1.2 billion tons of CO2 out of the U.S. emission stack and do it in seven and a half years. That's nearly equal to all of the emission. It's equal to more than half of the emissions attributable to oil consumption in the United States. I mean, it's almost equal to all industrial emissions in the United States. I mean, this is just a massive reduction. And yet the spin around this has been, oh, well, everyone just, oh, well, they, 
you know, we, we, use your damn calculator. I mean, this is clearly not going to happen. And yet uh, this is just kind of the accepted wisdom and repeated without any context or any, any skepticism by the New York Times. I just find it unconscionable the way the media has been reporting this. Okay, so I had to get that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> but the inflation issue, I mean, this is a, this is a global issue. And you and I, you know, we, I track coal prices. I'm on tradingeconomics.com, right? It, coal today in the Newcastle marker is at $370 a ton. Well, at the beginning of 2020, it was $50. So we're, we, everybody's focused on oil prices. Yes, they've gone up, you know, so they were around 30 and now Brent is trading at what, 90 or 100. So that's a tripling. Gas was at, you know, what, $2 at Henry Hub and now it's at eight. So that's a quadrupling. Well, the, the coal prices have quintupled. I mean, so you know, where's the coverage of that? And so these, these, the energy costs reverberate throughout the entire economy. But then you add the other supply chain issues, and particularly around food. And this is going to be a very big issue. And you and I both interviewed Doomberg. I mean, that's very worrisome because of, and that is directly related to the energy inputs. So we're seeing inflation across the board due to excessive government spending, due to supply chain issues, due to shortages of energy, due or, or insufficient supplies of energy during times of high demand. So all of these things are working together and they're going to have a big and negative impact on low and middle income consumers and low and middle income countries. You know, I'm no economist, but I've also heard that um, trade imbalances, uh, you know, fueling inflation as well. And, you know, the dominant subsidies are going to the wind and solar industry, which, you know, whose, whose supply chains and production is, is predominantly overseas. I mean, I guess I, I'm wondering um, to sort of try and steel man this, do you have an objection to um, subsidizing certain sectors of the of the uh, you know power generation uh, well, sector? You know, if, if these subsidies were going more towards nuclear, um, is that something that you would end up supporting? Um, you know, especially if that Hell supply yes. chain was local. So it's it's not an opposition yes. to to government intervention in this manner. No, no, and I think and I and. It, it, the, you, as you and I have talked about, and we've you know had many guests and Mark Nelson in common and others that you know what the 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 electricity sector is not like the other parts of the energy business. This is a critically important network and the, that cannot be allowed to fail. So we need robust government involvement and oversight to assure that the system works and that it's low cost because it's the basis of everything. So as you know, nuclear energy does not thrive when just simply left to the market. It needs strong governmental support, both in the regulatory part of it, in the handling the waste and the fuels and the, and the supply chains. So, but therein lies the conundrum, right? Well, you have to have strong governments to have strong nuclear entities, right? And so that's one of our big challenges. And I say our, invoking the papal we here, but I, I'm not, I, I, there is a very important role for government when it comes to electricity and managing the network. And that cannot be replaced by the private sector. We've seen that over and over again here in Texas, in California. You leave this market to the, the capitalists, they are going to plunder the consumer. That's just <laughs> the way it works. I mean, yeah, nuclear is often sort of pilloried as, as requiring that government support. But, you know, wind and solar are, are being talked about, um, you know, as historically cheap. Um, one wonders, you know, why they still require such subsidy. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, the history of the production tax credit? Um, I understand it's, you know, it was meant to expire many, many times over. 
Warren Buffett's famously right. said, you know, we get a tax credit if we build a lot of wind farms. That's the only reason to build them. They don't make sense without the tax credit. Um, tell us a little bit more. Uh, you know, you've written about this for, God, I think over a decade. <laughs> Fill us in. Yeah, well, sure. So the production tax credit is the tax federal tax credit that has been given to the wind industry. It's been extended 13 times and expired at the beginning of this year and is about to, well, and then if Manchin Schumer passes, then it will be renewed and extended for the 14th time and potentially make it, making it permanent. But it was always viewed as this temporary subsidy <clears throat> in order to get this nascent industry off the ground. And the same with solar. But now we're told over and over again that oh, well, wind and solar are cheaper, and therefore, you know, uh, they're going to dominate in the market. Well, if they're cheaper, then damn well prove it. You don't need my federal tax dollars to make your business work. And so what we've seen is that <clears throat> this migration or this evolution of these tax credits go from, well, this was a startup thing, and now it's the favored tax avoidance strategy by, being used by some of the biggest corporations in America. Mid-American Energy, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. You mentioned before, Warren Buffett is the CEO of Berkshire. In 2014, he said the only reason to build wind turbines is to get the tax credits. Without them, they don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so you see in Iowa, Mid-American Energy pushing wind and solar and even suing counties like Madison County, Iowa, to force the county to take wind turbines they don't want. So it, it, the whole system, the whole way these tax credits have evolved has become totally perverted. And it's the... They're fueling what I believe is this big business's assault on rural America to, and there, it is an assault in which they're in some cases suing to force these communities to take these projects they don't want because they are being motivated to get yet more and more tax credits. One more point, Next Era Energy, the world's biggest producer of renewable energy, formerly known as, as Florida Power and Light, has over $4 billion in tax credit carry forwards on their financial statements. This is it's a two hundred, a nearly a two hundred billion dollar market cap company. They won't be paying any corporate income taxes for years to come because they have been so effective at subsidy mining and using this cloak of climate change in order to garner all these tax credits to build wind and solar. It's just a truly remarkable story. Could you get any more cynical, Robert? <laughs> I, you know, I don't think it's even cynicism, Chris. I just think it's, it, look, I've, I've been a reporter my whole career. I've never had a real job. And I, you know, I think I'm getting, I'm starting to get where I kind of understand things, right? It's like, I'm, I'm not an idiot anymore, right? right? You know, when you start out as a reporter, you look back and you think, well, I don't know anything. And, but now having watched this industry and, and being more familiar with business and my first book was on Enron 20 years ago and understanding how to read financial statements. I'm just trying to be as clear-eyed as I can about this. And what we're seeing is that climatism and corporatism have merged. And it's, being, it's, it's been incredibly profitable for a very few entities. But that profit is being extracted both from rural communities that don't want these massive projects and from the federal, and from the federal taxpayer as well. So I, I saw a great piece. Um, I think you did a guest contribution to Grid Brief uh, actually just today. Uh, that's Emmett Penny's oh, yeah. uh, really excellent daily. My mutual friend Emmett Penny, who 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 I always get a kick out of. I yeah. just think he's uh, he's a remarkable. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to say kid. That's not diminutive. I don't mean it that way. But I just think that he's doing doing a remarkable uh, any a remarkable job. And he asked me to write that piece, and I thought, well, sure, you know, ha happy to do yeah, it. Yeah. So I mean, just uh, everyone who's listening, you got to go and subscribe to that. It's it's a daily newsletter. Really, if you want to keep your fingers on the pulse of energy, it's a great way to do so. Nice little short tidbits, but you did a piece um, on Generac, which is mm -hmm. a, a generator, like a home generator company, I guess. 
maybe talk about that in the broader yeah. context of the state of uh, of the U.S. grid right now. The the piece that I wrote for Grid Brief was called "What's Good for Generac is Bad for America," and I do a fair amount of public speaking, and so I I create you know I used to not use PowerPoint, and now I use it because I realize in talking about numbers and systems, you need visual information to help the uh, bring the audience along. So I've used a slide many times, and and I just thought, well, hell, I can write you know four or five hundred words just on this slide, and this and that's the that's the message. What's good for Generac is bad for America. Generac is a publicly traded company. They're based in Wisconsin. They are the they provide about <clears throat> three quarters of all the home standby generators in America, and their business, <clears throat> excuse me, is just booming. In, in since 2019, their revenues have, have have doubled. Their stock price has quintupled um, because home because homeowners all across America are buying home standby generators because they're looking at the grid and experiencing more blackouts. So they're spending ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to get generators hooked up to their homes. A friend of mine in Houston, she had a uh, her system was twelve thousand dollars. Last I would think I spoke to her in January. She said she wasn't expecting to get delivery for a year, and she's spending twelve grand. Wow. I mean, you know, this is just indicative of how it, you know Texas and and where does Generac see their most you know their biggest opportunities? Texas and California. Well, hello, yeah, of course. When you have such an unstable grid, you know, where people are voting with their feet to, you know, not quite defect, but certainly to have an insurance policy. And do you have any sense of, you know, what that total spending is? I mean, for that, that stock price to have, have gone through the roof, it'd be interesting to know what their sales are and, you know, what that would look like if it was actually invested in a, in a, in a more intelligent manner into a actual functional collective grid or, you know, civilizational life support structure, yeah. as they call it. And that's the critical point is that consumers wouldn't be at... I'm not going to say they're wasting their money. They're spending, they're investing it in their infrastructure in their home. But they wouldn't be doing that if the grid were as robust and reliable as it should be, right? And 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 it, you know, you uh, looking at Generac's own investor presentations, they're saying we see a very fertile market here for years to come because our penetration rates are so low relative to now, you know, compared to what they could be. But they had uh, so last just in terms of well, what are what are the numbers? This year, they're projecting revenue of over five billion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Which is double what it was just three just three years ago. So they're doing a land office business. I mean, but I think this is part of what this Nigeriafication. We're seeing this all around the world, and you know, Europe is going to, I think, going to see some of this. Is there are blackouts there that people are going to get their own small generators and they're going to run them on liquid hydrocarbons or natural gas? I think it's going to be more likely. It's going to be diesel gasoline fuel oil for these smaller gen sets you know of you know i've, I've got a six kilowatt system you know a standby generator it's not connected to my house but you know those kind of generators are going to be they're they're proliferating all over the world but particularly in california something like ten thousand new permits a year in the bay area alone so this is a booming business because all around the world grids are faltering because of lack of investment and also because of high cost hydrocarbons do you see an end to this in sight? I mean, one would think you wouldn't have to look further than than Europe right now to understand the error of our ways. You know, we've both had Meredith Anguin on uh, several times, uh, the fatal trifecta um, kind of grid. Maybe define what that is really quickly for our listeners. And I mean, do you see uh, some rationality coming back at some point or are the kind of path dependencies too great, the patronage relationships too strong? 
Well, I'll make one other quick point about hydrocarbon pricing. There was a Raymond James is a in, investing investment bank here in the U.S. It recently put out a report on the cost of hydrocarbons and pointed out that on a per million BTU basis or per jewel basis, that oil is actually now getting close to or even cheaper than natural gas delivered into the European market. So you have gas on, on the TTF marker, which is the Dutch trading hub uh, here in the U.S. We price it at Henry Hub generally, but uh, the TTF hub where it's selling for six or seven times what it is in the U.S. So at fifty or sixty dollars per million BTUs, that's what three or four hundred dollars a barrel of oil equivalent. So <clears throat> the point that Raymond James was making was that consumers are going to some of them are going to switch back to oil to produce power, which is something we haven't seen at scale globally since the nineteen seventy three oil embargo. Right. You know, after that first oil shock, there was a massive move away from oil for power generation that time the US was pr producing almost 20% of its electricity from oil. Well, then the shot price shot up. And then we said, well, no, Carter came in. Well, let's build more coal plants because we didn't want to, that oil dependency. But I, I just wanted to make that quick point. But as far as, you know, what gets this uh, gets this back on track, Chris, I'm, <clears throat> I think we're in for a couple, uh, a few hard years. I think globally, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not an economist, but I'm really paying attention. I'm you know, like you, I'm doing a lot of reporting, talking to people. What do you see? What's happening? these these disruptions because partly because of the russian invasion of ukraine partly because of now nancy pelosi's i think foolish move to go to taiwan now why are you doing this now you know that china is potentially going to you know we face potential conflict in 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 in, in around taiwan you know, we're just in some really perilous times. And to get the supply chains back in order to either we, we're going to have to repress demand, suppress demand through economic slowdown, or we're going to have to, you know, just work out these problems and or we're going to have to work out these problems over years because it took us years to get in the ditch. It's going to take us a long time to get out. Yeah. I mean, on the Taiwan front, we had uh, Angelica Wong on. Um, God, it must have been a year ago now. Um, and that was in the context of, uh, you know, this losing referendum to, you know, restart, uh, well, actually just, I think, get started a, a reactor that's been sitting idle. I think it's never been fueled. Um, but she was talking about, you know, China has no need to invade Taiwan um, with the dependence on imported fossil fuels and LNG. You know, a simple kind of energy blockade would be enough to uh, sort of bring Taiwan to its knees. It was, uh, was interesting on that front. But it's funny how energy kind of underlies um, well, obviously, right? So much of, of geopolitics um, and so much of what we're facing right now. Yeah, well, but I mean, if they did a block, but a blockade's an act of war. So, you know, that, that you know, you could say just an energy blockade. <laughs> well, you know, what else is there? Um, but yeah, any kind of blockade like that would be, is an act of war. And then is the U.S. going to get pulled into that? Man, I mean, it's, it's, it's a scary situation. I mean, I thought it would have been a much better play for for Putin to, uh, you know, not launch a war of aggression. But if he really wanted to put pressure on NATO countries, particularly Europe, simply to do what what he's doing now with pipeline politics, you know, I'm not sure that the invasion was was necessary in terms of that enormous lever that he held over over Europe. And maybe maybe China's learned from, um, you know, some of the difficulty that Russia's had in Ukraine. Who knows? Who knows? I'm speculating. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know, but I mean, you know, Russia's hold over Europe is right now is it's not. It, I, mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it is near total. I mean, you know, in that their ability to oh, we're going to turn the gas on, we're going to turn the gas off. Oh, you want a little more? Okay, we'll beg or say nicely or you know, please or you know, whatever it is. 
And then Putin can make as much money off of diminished flows of hydrocarbons as he was off to supplying it in, you know, in, in, in full, in full volume. So, um, you know, Putin is, is in a still, I think, I think the thing was, a, it's a disastrous move for him over the long term, but he still has a lot of cards to play. And, and Nas Al-Haji, a friend of mine was on the podcast on the power hungry podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. And he was just saying, Putin's going to starve Europe as much as he can. And then you know, try and force them to come to some accommodation because it could be a very hard winter for several European countries. Mm-hmm. Sh- shifting back to renewables, um, certainly, I think you know they're as a, as a producer with very low marginal costs. Um, they are also benefiting from high prices. The the projects that have been built um, and are also harvesting subsidies and other forms of kind of rentier capitalism that you've outlined, but. In terms of um, you know new projects, and I mean the U.S. is going to be embarking on a lot of new projects with these production tax credit subsidies. Um, you know we've seen skyrocketing prices in terms of some of the you know basic commodities that are used to build uh, wind and solar, um, and you know I, th- I think that's led to you know, European wind companies now moving to China where they can source labor and commodities much cheaper. Polysilicon right. prices rising by three hundred percent earlier this year. I mean. Yeah, I mean, how do you view that? And, and I'm interested in, in the sort of, again, this sort of trade deficit side of this um, and, and the inflation bit of the puzzle um, with, with so much of the supply chain being overseas, um, you know, the impact on the U.S. economy of, of further basing its, its energy future in, in intermittent renewables. Well, you make a key point here, and the, and the, I don't know that you said China, but it is all about the Chinese. Well, you did say China, but it is all about Chinese supply chains. And now just in the last few days, you've seen the Chinese government tell John Kerry, you know, we're not so interested in your climate discussions anymore, buzz off. I mean, I, I think they said it somewhat differently in diplomatic language, but that was it, right? That we're suspending any discussions about climate change. This is not our first priority. But when you look at polysilicon, you mentioned, which is a, the key ingredient in, of course, of course, in solar panels, 70%, something like that comes from the uh, from the PRC. And of that, uh, uh, something about half of that comes from the Xinjiang province, where the Chinese government, according to the U.S. government, is committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority and using that same Uyghur Muslim minority as slave labor to produce solar panels. Well, so my question, of course, is, well, how much, how much solar, how much slave labor can you have in your solar panels and still call it clean energy? I think the answer is zero. Right. Um, but the, the, again, this isn't, none of this is being discussed in the Manchin-Schumer bill. This is like the, the entirety of the renewable industry doesn't want to talk about this. But it's not just the polysilicon, Chris. Remember, this is, goes on to neodymium iron boron magnets. So China has a stranglehold, I would say that's the right word, when it comes to the processing of rare earth elements, neodymium, praseodymium, uh, dysprosium, yttrium, uh, these uh, all these other uh, lanthanides on the on the uh, periodic table are absolutely essential for uh, electric vehicles, for wind turbines, um, and th- this is the other part of this entire discussion that's not being dis- you know not getting the kind of recognition that it deserves. The Manchin Schumer bill attempts to make some headway on this, but I think it's going to be incremental in that it's going to take. A very long time, and I do mean years or even decades for the U.S. to ramp up, if it can, mining, processing, and fab- and centering of the these mag the the mining and 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 refining of the elements that are needed, but also turning them into usable products, including the permanent magnets needed for EVs and and uh, wind turbines. 
What's the state of, I believe there was tariffs or, or a ban or an attempt to, uh, you know, by the U.S. to respond to the slave labor within the solar supply chain? Um, I've heard some some rumblings. I haven't, again, been paying attention as much as I should to what's happening in the U.S., but what's what's the state of, of those measures? Yeah, that was, those tariffs were, <clears throat> were put in place um, uh, last year, if memory serves, um, and it was because the, uh, the, the, the domestic solar business in the U.S. was looking abroad and saying, well, the uh, Chinese are dumping their solar panels and, and routing them through uh, other South, South Asia countries in order to circumvent uh, some of these trade laws. And so there were tariffs were put on Viet, uh, solar panels from several countries, including Vietnam and, and, and I think Thailand. And then suddenly those, you know, just the, those were all done away with. The Biden administration said, oh, never mind. We're, we're okay effectively with China dumping solar panels into the, China, into the U.S. market. So, you know, all of these things, I, what worries me most about the Biden administration now, Chris, and I say this as a nonpartisan, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm mm -hmm. disgusted. But I don't see any kind of rationality or any kind of sensibility about what their goals are, right? As a friend of mine said, they have a lot of tactics, but no strategy, you know? And so it's just, you see it in the Manchin-Schumer bill, 69 different line items that give a lollipop to every special interest, every energy-related special interest in, 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 in the energy business got some little favor in that bill. I mean, I think the U.S. has a, has a pattern of uh, sort of selective interest in the human rights within, within certain countries of geopolitical interest, but it certainly is interesting mm. seeing that hand weakened. Um, you know, the Khashoggi murder um, re resulting in some real revulsion internationally um, in the U.S. putting some pressure on Saudi Arabia, um, now begging Saudi Arabia to... Murder murder and dismemberment, oh, remember. Just murder and yeah, dismemberment. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think the U.S. Is, is certainly losing its its influence and its ability to, you know, leverage human rights issues, again, selectively, but but on those countries because of that. You know, something that, again, Emmett Penny... Uh, talked about recently and and being you know pretty cynical myself uh, particularly around politics uh, and seeing a lot of the special interests driving it and i think the bill illustrates that quite well uh, but he said um you know the reason for a current uh energy mix that that fatal trifecta that uh, meredith Angwin mentions uh, so so eloquently um the over-reliance on renewables uh, just in time natural gas and and you know, dependence on on imports emmett talked about the patronage relationships responsible for that and he said you know, the renewables industry has an excellent patronage relationship uh, with the Democratic Party, um, the gas industry, good patronage relationship with uh, the Republicans and wind and solar, uh, plus gas also have an excellent patronage relationship amongst themselves. I mean, it seems like something's got to change. There has to be a new uh, special interest that arises. Um, otherwise, um, these ones are going to dominate and really, really steer, steer policy. And, you know, from your own writing, it's, it's become pretty clear what a kind of rentier arrangement um, we have here. So maybe speak about this, those special interests and in terms of the kind of backroom politics, um, if you see any kind of mechanism for restoring some sanity here. Yes, um, I, I'm hopeful. I am. But I am also very cognizant of the power of these lobbies. And the the, these are some of the biggest corporations, not just in the United States, but in the world, who want to make sure that these tax credits continue to flow, right? right? And there has been this um, kind of hand-holding relationship between the renewable business and the gas industry, and the gas industry even marketing itself, saying, we're the perfect complement to renewables, mm -hmm. right? And so there... 
you know, I, how do we even discuss it, I think, is the, is the difficult part because I, I'm not a Washington insider, but I can read the language in the bill and the CBO report to see, well, how is it that all of this, how is it manifesting itself in the actual line items in the legislation and the line items that are showing up in the things that the, the Congressional Budget Office are saying are going to cost taxpayers money. And that's the proof in the pudding, is that these industries, these, these, this, this professional lobby, the, the, as I say, the, the, the NGO, corporate, industrial, congressional media complex, incredibly powerful. And they have the, the, the ears of policymakers and their policymaker staff and that they are able to then engineer these pieces, you know, like we just want a little taste, you know, we just want a little taste just for us because it's for the good of the country. Right. And that's always, and it's for the good of the climate, but we just need a little taste and do we, you know, it's going to be good for everybody. And, and that's what we've, that's what's happened. And, but I will say, let me just add this. I'm, and I'll sound like a Homer here and I know you're a Canadian, but I, it, it, for all of these problems, I think, I still think the U S in, in, is in, in an incredibly enviable position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Because, and you talked about currencies, or we mentioned it briefly, look around the world. Which currencies are the strongest now? Well, the dollar and the ruble, which to me are indicative of, well, we're the countries that are producing hydrocarbons, right. that are producing energy that you can sell. Well, the U.S. and Russia, right? And the pound is now near, or, I mean, the euro is now nearing parity with the dollar. I mean, you know, the British pound is sinking. I mean, all of these currencies are falling because they're having to buy energy in dollars and, and, and it's indicating, I think, you know, just where the power is and in the world. And that power comes from those molecules that you can, you can use directly or you can turn into electrons. Mm, yeah. I mean, a, a, getting back to the special interests, um, one, one can see the appeal of, you know, populist politicians talking about draining the swamp. But again, I just have such a hard time seeing a, a mechanism for, for change to occur here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic, as Molly Ivan said, optimistic to the point of idiocy. Um, you know, uh, Peter Zion's new book, and I've, I've been working through it. I've listened mm -hmm, to him on several mm -hmm. podcasts. Uh, he's an American geo, geopolitical guy. And um, he comes to the same point, you know, that there are, he's, his book, uh, his new book is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And he talks about demographics and all the problems that are facing Europe and China and, you know, but he goes around the world and says, well, compared to the rest of them, U.S. is in a pretty good position because of favorable demographics, because we don't have any enemies at or near our shores, although I kind of get worried about you Canadians, you get pretty rowdy. Um, but that the U.S. comparatively, due to demographics, et cetera, is, is still in a pretty good position. Right. And also being a massive energy uh, powerhouse now. Right. A, a massive energy producer. Yeah. In terms of, uh, you know, getting back to the bill once more um, and the, the kind of uh, polarized response to it, the 50-50 vote with the vice president casting the deciding vote, what are, what are Republican objections um, and, and do you feel that they're, they're sensible or grounded in uh, a better understanding of the energy crisis that we're in? Um, or is it just simply, you know, opposing the Democrats? And Well, I think a lot of it, I think it's a lot of the latter, you know, that they want to they don't want to give Biden any kind of a win right now, especially with the midterm elections coming up in November. So they don't want to give the Democrats anything to crow about, right? And so that's certainly part of it. But I think there is also substantive uh, objections to this. And uh, in talking with some people I know in Washington, the, the parliamentary problems, the way this is being pushed through, 
I think is just bad for our, pro, our for our democratic process because when you think about it, what are the you know we've talked already about the fragility of our electric grid. Well, where's why hasn't there been a hearing on the effect that these massive subsidies for solar and wind will have on the fragility of the grid? We're already seeing the grid being fragilized because of this push for more wind and solar. We're already seeing the affordability problems due to this influx of wind and solar. But yet there's no discussion of this. And so that to me is just bad policymaking, bad government. And that part of it to me bothers me deeply because we're supposed to have a process. And instead of a process now, we're getting this jam through thing like, well, you don't like it. Well, you know, sorry, up yours. We're going to make it happen. We don't care what you think. And that's that's dangerous. Yeah, I think perhaps, uh, you know, the kind of turning point um, will be more of these more of these blackout events. I mean, you you suffered through the Texas blackout. Um, California is getting plagued with, uh, I guess, more mini blackouts there. Um, you know, the the MISO or MISO, I forget how it's pronounced, forecasting some real difficulties. And, you know, what's what's interesting is even uh, Gavin Newsom, the, uh, you know, pretty famously anti-nuclear governor of California, I think he had an op-ed in the LA Times, um, basically trying to uh, seed public opinion for the arguments as to why to, to save Diablo Canyon. And I can't help seeing that as, you know, if this guy's got presidential ambitions, if he leaves California as a total disaster um, with, uh, with blackouts, that's not going to, you know, do well for him politically. Um, right. So, I mean, yeah, talk, I guess talk about uh, maybe some of your own experience going through the blackouts, you know, Texas's uh, response to that. You know, it's much easier to save a nuclear plant to, to get grid stability or to maintain it, you know, by the threads that it's hanging in California than it is to, to build new nuclear. But in terms of the, the Texan response and responses more broadly, um, you know, what, what is Texas investing in after, after the blackout experience? Have they learned their lesson at all? Well, let me just, I'll make one quick comment on, on Newsom, if you don't mind, on the nuclear part of this. There are, one of the other reasons that I'm optimistic is not only are some American companies like NuScale uh, just got approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the U.S. for their design for a light water reactor. So that's a very positive move. Now, whether NuScale will be there and their design was 50 megawatts electric, I think, or 70 megawatts electric, and their plan is to build multiples as small modular reactors in one place. But they've had a devil of a time getting through the regulatory process over a decade and approximately a billion dollars. But now there's it appears that they're through it and that they can move to commercial deployment, which is very positive. So there are some positive noises on nuclear in the U.S. that I think are are worth noting. And the U.S. could help lead this worldwide renaissance, I think, in nuclear. Um but as as to Newsom, yes, I mean, I think it's already clear he's throwing his hat in the in the in the ring for uh, running for president for 2024. And why wouldn't he? You know, California has the most electoral college votes of any state in the country. Right. Uh, he's incredibly handsome. I saw him once in in, in person. I thought, damn, you're beautiful. I mean, I, I mean, I looked at him. I thought, am I gay? I mean, I think like, <laughs> no. I mean, it was just like he's like right. I mean, he's you know, movie star handsome, right? right and. Right. I don't think he has any particular political bent except to, you know, promote Gavin Newsom, right. but his, but his about face or his, you know, somewhat tepid support for keeping Diablo Canyon open is telling, but I think it's also practical politics. He's looking at the California grid and saying, and seeing how fragile it is and recognizing, oh, if we unplug the one power plant that's providing roughly 10% of the electricity in a state that already is having, uh, you know, is in the grid is in, in, in meltdown 
maybe that's not such a good idea. So I mean, maybe right. this is just that some rationality is creeping in despite decades of democratic anti-nuclear dogma. Right. And more specifically, again, in, in regards to Texas, um, what has been the oh, response right. yeah. to, to those to those blackouts in terms of future electricity planning? Good, thanks. You're, you know, I'm getting on these sidetracks here. You got to keep me focused here, Kiefer. Well, my, um, my questions are always <clears throat> horribly conflated, and I'm always mixing about five into them, so it's, it's not your fault. No, but but Texas is interesting in that you know I'm I'm from Oklahoma, so I'm not bragging on Texas, and I'm uh, you know, but I've lived here now 37 years, and the grid here has been is being overwhelmed by weather dependent renewables and it's pricing out the thermal generators now i will say you know despite all the warnings we haven't had blackouts yet this summer and we've come close a couple of times but we're not building dispatchable generation and the you know the and further the grid has become far too reliant on gas and because it's reliant on gas and when that gas prices are going up prices are going up. And we're seeing that not just in Texas, but of course in California and New York, all across the country, because the gas and, and electric sectors, uh, the gas and electric grids have merged, but they're still, they're still regulated separately. So that, that point is, is one of the reasons why Meredith's, you know, Meredith's fatal trifecta is so important. This just-in-time delivery of gas is a strategic vulnerability in the system. So, but, but back to ERCOT in Texas, you know, the managers, the Public Utility Commission, they're doing what they can to try and promulgate new rules that are going to make the grid more stable, uh, incent new investment, uh, but they cannot stop all this federal subsidies, uh, the federal subsidies that are that are leading developers to only build more wind and solar because that's where the money is. Just, just briefly, because it's of interest uh, to me, um, you know, with the Henry Hub price quadrupling in the last two years, um, you know, this, this, this price of gas with, uh, Ontario, you know, not having a fracking industry and, and being a, a major importer now from the U S and the impacts it's going to have on our electricity planning. Um, you know, the impacts on replacing a 3.1 mega, sorry, 3.1 gigawatt, uh, nuclear complex at Pickering with gas. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to answer that question. Uh, you know, and I know forecasting is notoriously difficult, but where do you see natural gas prices, uh, settling in the States over the next decade, say? Well, now, if I knew the answer to that, Chris, I'd own the decouple podcast, I'd own your house, I'd own most of your block, I'd own half of Toronto. Um, but I think the, you know, the without being cute, I think what is the is is already clear is that because the US has become a major LNG exporter, that US gas prices are rising toward the global marker, right? And there is, I'm saying there's a global, there really isn't a global marker, but there are a couple of markers. One is the TTF trading hub in Holland, which is on onshore, but the JKM marker with JK, uh, Japan, Korea marker for LNG into the Asian market. So the more gas gets exported out of the US, the higher the domestic price in the US will be because there's such a, a, an arbitrage play for the, the, the shippers to move US gas to other markets. So I think that's one of the macro trends. But the, the then the U.S. then becomes one of the key swing producers in terms of the global price or global availability of gas. So, you know, where will those prices go? I think we're I think that we're we're the we're going to be we'll have higher lows. I think that that's clear that the 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 low price of gas will be higher than it has been in the past. Second, that U.S. drillers are much more. Um, 
disciplined now in their production of gas than and and oil than they were before because the at the height of the shale revolution or during the shale revolution they burned through about 300 billion dollars in in cash that just was vaporized and consumers in the US benefited and and some around the world because they overproduced and underdelivered on profitability but now they've not they're not going to do that again so there's going to be much more uh, uh, discipline in the U.S. in terms of gas production, which I think is the other reason why we will have higher lows in terms of price. Uh, but if you're going to ask me to name a price, I'm, I, you know, I can't do that. But, but I think that the, we're, we're seeing the, the, that is clear trend, and I'm, I'm summarize it is that nat- the natural gas molecule, the, the methane, is becoming much more of an international commodity than it ever was before, and that's because the U.S. has in, has uh, U.S. companies have spent so much on on LNG export. I mean, are there a bunch of new LNG terminals getting getting built? I know there was a, a fire at one that had interesting impacts on both domestic and international prices. But I'm, you know, now that I got you here, I'm kind of eager to <laughs> to deep dive a bit of this natural gas topic. Yeah, well, the Freeport LNG terminal, <clears throat> there's a, been a lot of speculation about what happened there and why that plant went off. Was it the Russians? <laughs> Again, there's a lot of a lot of, of of suspicion around what happened, and I, you know, I I'll just leave it at that. I mean, there's nothing sure. that can has been proved or even alleged, um, you know, except behind closed doors. But you saw when that plant went offline, uh, the price of gas in in Europe w- spiked. Or, or I'm sorry, the price of gas in the U.S. went down. The price of gas in Europe went up. Um, so. This is a the there are some new LNG terminals that have been approved. I, I there was just one the other day. It's hard for me to keep track of them. But yes, we have the U.S. is now the biggest LNG exporter in the world. And um, so, you know, who would have thunk it? I mean, uh, when I wrote my third book, uh, Gusher of Lies, it was now what fourteen years ago. Everyone agreed the U.S. was going to be a major LNG exporter, and in a matter of you know less than a decade, exactly the flip the script. There's a bit of a schizophrenic policy, I think, towards fossil fuels in the U.S. right now, with uh, particularly the Democrats in power. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I mean, what what are the steel trap mine for the obvious there, Doctor? Right. Well, I mean, (laughs) it looks like your leg is broken. <laughs> the the reason I bring it up is because uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. I think part of what um, you know Mansion's uh, cooperation involved was um, you know increasing licensing for offshore drilling. I believe. Um, so, t- to what extent is is that is that sort of schizophrenia shifting? Well, I mean, leave the Inflation Reduction Act to the side. It's this schizophrenia in the Biden administration about berating the oil and gas companies for the profits they're making while at the same time begging them to drill more or telling them they should drill more or that they, you know, suppressing domestic production. And that's, in fact, what the Biden administration has done by uh, limiting the number of leases that they're going to offer and then going on bended knee to Riyadh to talk to Mohammed bin Salman or to the Iranians or to the Venezuelans. I mean, you know, are you kidding me? I mean, it's like you read, I'm reading it in the onion. I mean, after decades of all of the, you know, American policy on energy has been around this objection to foreign oil. And now we have the president of the United States going to these foreign countries, including the narco Maduro in, in Venezuela, which is, they can, there's no way that, I mean, Petavesa, the national oil company in Venezuela is they're, they're in shambles. We're going to the Iranians. The Iranians support Hezbollah. Hezbollah was responsible for the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut in 1982, the largest loss of, of U S Marine life, U S Marines 
since Iwo Jima in World War II, and we're asking the Iranians, I mean, what are you doing, man? I mean, it just is, schizophrenia doesn't do it proper justice. I mean, it just is, in it, again, a lot of tactics, but no strategy. Right, right. Well, Robert, we're kind of coming towards the end of the interview. and um, Sorry to I go off to, there, but I mean- No, but just, no, listen, truly, I mean, I've got so much I want to pick your brain about. But it's truly remarkable about this kind of lack of understanding of what energy security means right. and how you're going to try and achieve it, and particularly for the low and middle income consumers. Low, high cost energy is the enemy of the poor. It's the enemy of the poor, always, everywhere. And yet the, here's the Democratic Party, which claims itself to be or styles itself to be the party of the working class. And what they're doing is just sticking it to the poor and the middle class. I just don't, I, I find it just disgusting, frankly. Are, are you at liberty to talk about any of your uh, upcoming projects? Sure, sure. We're, uh, thanks. I'm working on a new documentary. It's called Burning Down the Grid. Um, I thought I'd made my first and last documentary when I made Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. But after uh, experiencing the blackout here in Texas and seeing what has happened with the grid more broadly in the United States and the future of our generation portfolio, I decided I had to make another documentary. So um, we're working on it. You can, in fact, our website is live now, burningdownthegrid.com. You can find it there. Um, and then I'm just, uh, you know, grinding away on, uh, oh, actually, I've launched a TikTok channel. Have I mentioned that I'm going to be the king no of TikTok way. now? <laughs> yes, all right. I'm on TikTok I did a piece on, in fact, just yesterday, I've had 2,000 views already on TikTok. Who knew? Um, about the closure of the New York nuclear plants. So I'm working with right. my daughter, Mary, uh, who I dearly love. She's in Los Angeles, and she's helping me, uh, you know, get my game on, my TikTok game on. So uh, that's been fun because to me, it's just a, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of, I produce a lot of content of different kinds, yeah. the podcast and writing and, and, uh, uh, and, and do a lot of speaking, but <clears throat> the idea of being able to produce, here's my argument. I'm going to do it in about a minute. And that just trying to right. make that happen is fun. You know, it's a good challenge. It's a new challenge. Why do you care about this? Well, you should care about it because this, this, and this 60 seconds and, and then see ya. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, part of me despairs at, um, you know, how short attention spans are and, you know, the ways in which it's hard to develop complex arguments. But at the same time, I mean, with Twitter and TikTok, it it forces you to be brief to to get to the point um and it's almost like you know writing a haiku um and there's a certain beauty to you that you have to meet the audience where they are and you know i just turned 62 last month and so tiktok represents a whole other demographic that i might not otherwise you know i you look at your statistics on who your audience is and mine skews toward people who are you know look kind of like me and they live in the united states and so if I can reach, you know, beyond that, even just as a lark, well, why wouldn't I, you know, to try and do something else to, I don't want to sound too pompous here, but broaden the reach to try and reach a new audience, to try and force myself because it is hard to do something in a different medium that is, but that allows me the, the possibility of expanding the conversation or affecting a few opinions. I think that's exciting. Yeah, no, I, I long ago gave up on, on trying to keep up with your pace of content creation, but I got to say, it's, it's really admirable. This is clearly uh, a passion project for you. Um, you know, up to one thirty in the morning last night, going over, uh, some of these, uh, some of the paperwork related to the bill and just putting banging out the podcast and now I, I now TikTok. highlighted him there and I'm, it's impressive robert it's because it's so important and i think it's the same motivation that you have that this is not this these are the most important issues in our society right. and we have to, we are called our purpose is to make sure that we're doing what we can to 
put the light on them because they 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 are so important right well given all your time constraints uh appreciate you making time for decouple today always happy to do it chris thanks take care robert If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.